This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. It gives me great pleasure to um, to talk to uh, Margaret Gardner, the Vice-Chancellor of Monash University. Margaret and I have known each other forever. Uh, we, were, we first met each other at Griffith University uh, during one of the very first... Um, Lovins, and uh, I, I still remember that that those conversations we had. You were head of school, and I was acting dean at the Gold Coast. So, our our, our careers have run in parallel, and uh, yours yours has been eminent. And I think you're now the longest serving vice chancellor in Australia. I understand that might be the case. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm sure you've got some good stories to tell and some reflections on what's happening now, in particular. But I asked you to bring an object. Yeah. Uh, that represented your um, your leadership journey, but also your your experience as a learner. So, what have you brought for us? Well, I I looked at that and I thought I can't. I don't have an object except in the abstract. This yep. isn't. Um, so this is a book. <laughs> yes. And and. The, my journey as an educator, um, both from being educated and uh, and participating in it, uh, being an educator in universities, really the book has been um, central. So even though we work in so many digital forms, I would have to say that my journey began and remains deeply tethered to the book as a repository of wonderful ideas that stimulate the understanding we have of the world and are the way you learn from others and give you the ideas that you um, largely uh, communicate to others. Now, when I say the book, of course, that includes journal articles and we read a lot of books digitally now and we read a lot of material digitally, but, but I would say it, it, it is the considered argument, if you like, <laughs> uh, in written form. And I don't know how else you do that other than wave a sort of metaphorical book around. <laughs> so do you also use the book or reading um, as, as part of your relaxation? Oh, oh yes. Um, I, I, I have, perhaps like many people in our field, um, have always read. I still read. I regard the reading of fiction and 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 indeed nonfiction. I find my interest in nonfiction is slightly reduced since <laughs> um, work involves a lot of nonfiction. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. Reading is the source of a source of joy mm -hmm. um, and development and relaxation, and it's the first thing I would do and the last thing I would do. So, what are you reading at the moment? Oh well, in fact, the book I'm waving around at the moment, and I should have read it a little earlier than this. Um, this one is written by another vice chancellor whom I know. Um, called The Pursuit of Possibility. So Nigel Thrift, redesigned oh, yes. research, 
redesigning research university. So I'm re reading that. Um, I am I am reading in fiction terms. I started John Banville's The Singularities. Um, mm -hmm. Is the most recent fiction I've opened. Yes, and prior to that, for all sorts of bizarre reasons, I started. I read, although it's been a long time since she's written, um, Penelope Fitzgerald's Offshore, which is a Booker winning yeah. um, from a long time ago, because I had for various reasons an opportunity to talk with Hermione Lee, who wrote a biography of Penelope oh. Fitzgerald. And I thought, dear, I, I mean, Hermione Lee's written, Dame Hermione Lee yeah. <laughs> has written on Virginia Woolf, uh, um, I think was probably her first substantial biography, but she's also written on Penelope Fitzgerald. And I thought, oh, now there's an author I've never read. Why haven't I read her? And I thought I'd pull that up. And yeah, I, I like crime fiction. I, maybe last year sometime, I worked my way through, systematically through all the Dorothy L. Sayers. All right. Because, because um, well, because Gowdy Nights is so interesting. Anyway, I, I, you can tell I like fiction um, and probably the non-fiction I read most now so that's a book yeah but I spend a lot of time picking up um, blog writers on higher education yes. like yes. Andrew Norton and yeah. Alex Usher and you know and I've always loved what Gavin Moody writes and his commentary so you know if I'm reading in higher education, yes, I would look at published pieces and um, articles that are written, but I also keep an eye on the blogs. <laughs> and what about podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts as well? I don't listen to podcasts. This is, um, uh, no, that's not entirely true. When I listen to podcasts is if I'm on a long drive. Right. I, and um, I know a lot of people put, you know, Earplug, ear pods in and uh, do that while they're running but I'm not a runner <laughs> so, <laughs> so so I have to be sitting in the car to listen to a podcast and usually a long car journey and yeah so it's it gets to be rather a holiday type of thing rather than a right work day sort of thing so when you think of your career as a vice chancellor in, in two very large complex universities, you couldn't get to universities more complex than RMOT and, and Monash. What have, what have the highlights been in, in your role as Vice-Chancellor and leading such complex international organisations? Um, the, as, so there, there are two things there, the, um, the outcomes you hope for, if you mm -hmm. talk intellectually about as you approach them, the thing I have had most, uh, enjoyment and satisfaction from in the in the approach is um, putting putting a lot of time and thought into what will effectively pick from their history and culture the things that they can distinctively contribute in education and research both in Australia and in the case of the universities I've been in beyond mm -hmm. Australia. And so strategy, university strategy is an abiding and deep interest. Mm -hmm. And I'm 
interested in it in the way it connects with culture mm -hmm. um, and in the way it then is able to sharpen the sorts of outcomes that people might provide. So we get different, if you like, different ways of thinking about how we might deliver education and research in universities, education and research and the services around them that you take as given as institutions, there's a level of um, things that are important in value terms, particularly to uh, universities of the types that we work in, but it's then how that might be expressed. And therefore, it forces you to think in ways, that, uh, in different ways about how you might think mm -hmm. of education, the educational experience, the, the shape and profile of it, um, the experience that you provide, and the same with research. And the thinking about that and then the thinking through how it might best be implemented is intellectually very satisfying. If you talk about the actual immediate um, joy, you get the great, great thing about universities is the opportunities you get and can be in, whether it's, and you don't get so much of this as a vice chancellor, the ability to sit and listen, and every now and then I get a chance to listen to someone talk um, deeply about something in their field, to watch a student uh, mm -hmm. um, do some sort of exposition about what they're doing, because it's to watch some, someone with a passion for what they're doing explicate uh, and talk to others uh, about what they're learning in your you learn in a whole series of ways from that. I particularly like the conversation. So the bringing leadership together, bringing groups of staff together and hearing them reflect on, they might be strategic questions, mm -hmm. they, might be, they might be other things. At the moment, because our strategy says that we will be concentrated on impact and we will Worry. So our excellence has to deliver with others an impact, and that impact will be on three global challenges, climate change, geopolitical security, and fostering thriving communities. So we've opened up a conversation process across the university, first with staff, and it will out to alumni, to industry partners, to uh, when I, staff and students in the university, and then out to alumni and industry on those three themes and just watching people address them because it's a conversation to say, when we look at these three themes, what capabilities do we have? What might we do? What should we be doing? How will we work with others? Those sorts of conversations in which people bring their expertise and bring all that expertise to new ideas, I, I've got to say, in, in the moment, they are some of the most satisfying things you see. And then you hope you see really solid outcomes. Like mm -hmm. uh, there are things, you know, you're, you're always watching. God, the, the, the most depressing thing is trying to move the dial, as you know, on education and whether you're delivering an education that is making the sort of 
impact and outcome for students that you want. So God, I've spent a long time, like all of us, looking at those and cogitating on what things seem to make the dial move and mm -hmm. could, you, could you do better? Watching um, successes in research, which I must say we are much better at measuring and, and seem to actually be able to see things um, develop mm -hmm. uh, in satisfying ways. And uh, so watching what those outcomes are. And the other one is that's also very hard to move the dial on beyond education is have you got, have you got access to people irrespective of background in, into your university? Have you got the appropriate diversity? And I'm most worried about the way um, socioeconomic disadvantage, of course, plays through a whole series of other uh, gender, race, um, uh, ethnicity, culture. Mm -hmm. uh, so worrying about moving those sorts of outcomes so that you are actually making the university accessible. So watching those numbers, I like statistics, is, I wouldn't say enjoyable, but is, an, is something you, you find you're constantly going back to and reflecting on and wondering about the things you thought that worked back when you started mm -hmm. <laughs> and what you think you know about them now. Uh, um, I'd love to so say, you like to think you're learning. <laughs> I, I remember a number of years ago when you were the chair of the Office of Learning and Teaching Committee that I was on as well. Mm. And this has stayed with me and it's a number of years since that happened. But you described yourself as an educator and a change agent. <laughs> Oh, would you, yeah, and would you would you still describe yourself as an educator and a change agent? For, but for me, that was extraordinarily powerful, and it was very real because of the Margaret I have known over a thousand years. Um, I I don't uh, might have might have be, become so. What I would say is that I have always hoped to be a change agent. I went into leadership, I sometimes joke I'm very bad at taking, uh, taking direction from anybody else, but that only makes me like most academics. But, but, but um, it, it's actually the ability to work with others to see if you can uh, actually get the things you think should be happening to happen. And, and, and so in that sense, change agent, activist by nature, yes, it, it, it is something I think now, whether what I'm doing is having good outcomes is the thing I probably you're constantly worrying about, but yes, that would be true. And I am very fundamentally interested in education, even though um, I, I um, you know, like everybody, I began as an academic, you know, you do a research degree, you're, you're interested in your research questions. But the minute I started effectively teaching undergraduates, I became really interested in the way we captured a field of knowledge in the structure of the curriculum. And I worried about whether assessment did anything useful, what things you did. Uh, so even as an early academic, I had a lot of interest and did a lot of work on curriculum design, mm -hmm. good or bad. Um, uh, and 
and assessment, new forms of assessment to try and convey through that to students the sorts of things that are, that you think um, will develop uh, both the understanding and the other capabilities that you hope you're doing through an education. So I have remained interested in education, as you know, yeah. um, was involved. And I think one of the great losses for the sector was the Office for Learning and Teaching at the federal level. Um, I'm not sure still that most people understand that the work that was done, particularly with the people who were taking ideas and looking at how they could disseminate them across the sector. And we did research work right at the yep. end of that process. And they were having an impact and changing practice and disseminating good practice and new practices through the sector and new curriculum. Um, Australia had something really, really valuable there. And just I don't mean people aren't still worrying about it and talking to one another about it, but we had an institutional way of giving it impetus and we lost it. And it made teaching important. It made teaching respectable and respected. Yes. And there was a repository. I mean, I still go back sometimes from time yes. to time to find out, you know, what projects were done some time ago. And they are defensible, they're high quality. Do you think there, there's any appetite with this Minister for Education to not replace it or but but put something in, in place that respects and, and can generate teaching ideas? I, I think the current minister has a really genuine interest uh, in education and educational outcomes. And I think it's up to us to put the case for it in front of him. <laughs> Right, yes, yes. So, yes, the sector actually has to make the first move. Yes, I think it's up to us. We, yep. we, if we don't say we value it, why would, why would the minister say that he should tell us how, how we should go about improving educational practice? We'd probably, we should be yep. talking to him about what we, what we actually know has been effective. Mm. So can we just divert the uh, conversation a bit to your experience as a student? What, what was your experience as an undergraduate and a postgraduate student like? Um, so, uh, well, I probably had a relatively, uh, relatively conventional for the time educational experience in both. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, so, uh, I was a child who loved school <laughs> and I loved school and I came to university and I loved university. Um, perhaps not surprising. Now, uh, what actually happened? And I do find sometimes because people talk about golden ages and I'm old enough to often be in the apparent, to have been taught in the apparent golden age that they think happened. Um, I was in very big classes. My first year classes had hundreds of students. I did an economics degree. Um, I was in tutorials that had 30, up to 30 people in a tutorial. This sort of notion of this tiny little, you know, cosseted group, no. Um, I was in big classes. Um, uh, they were taught with the variability in quality that we would not tolerate now. Yep. Um, but I did have people who taught 
brilliantly and were inspiring. Um, I had people who were who you could see channeling how they'd been taught. So I had someone who um, was taught as an undergraduate at Oxbridge, and I understood as I saw this lecturer, young lecturer, um, talking to us, often carrying piles of books with bits of paper sticking out of them and referring to them, that we were getting their experience of an Ox, of lectures in Oxford. It was really interesting. So you could see how people were taught. So some of the lectures were brilliant. Some of them were dire. Um, some of the tutorials were fascinating. Some of them were, you know, less interesting. This experience with other students was wonderful. We had a specialist library that we hung out in and talked very loudly in and just had a huge amount of fun in. And it was at a time when they broke people into honours streams after first year. Mm -hmm. And so you were in big classes, but if you got into the honours stream on the basis of your results, and I did, you, you had extra teaching. So you were doing more than everybody else, but the more was in smaller classes. And so the feeling of being really seriously engaged, like we talked about what we were doing in university and out of university. Mm -hmm. and by the time I went to be a post-grad, I was also tutoring undergraduates mm -hmm. and, and, and in fact, designing curriculum because I happened to be in an area where, they, where we were allowed to have a huge amount of say. Um, interestingly and so the supervisory experience was again cohort of other PhD students who are all interested in the same thing we talked endlessly about things we went out together you know into pubs and restaurants and yeah so we had the student experience you might expect in the social sense and in a sense that is just wonderful where what you do is talk ideas mm -hmm. and periodically staff members came along. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then compare with what you see now in terms of the student experience? Um, well, I think there, I, I think indeed um, the way their classes are structured is like an immensely superior. <laughs> That, that all the underpinning of it, the, the what is available, um, how it is made available to them. I, I had no concept that you could go overseas and yet we offer every one of our undergraduates an overseas experience and our large numbers of completely inconceivable. Mm -hmm. um, so they have potential for much richer experiences in those ways much better structured teaching. I, I think we put a lot more time into supporting teachers to be innovative. And I think the base standard is better. So I think the truly dire have disappeared and the, <laughs> what you might call the, the standard has lifted dramatically. I think, so I was in big classes. Mm -hmm. and I got a cohort experience because I was in an honours class. Oh. I cannot tell you what it felt like for the other students 
in my year who would have been in much larger and more amorphous groups. Um, and I went through at a time when we were all in a bit of a ferment about protest. So there are all sorts of ideas floating around and we engaged with them in different ways. But in our case, to be blunt, it was actually mostly about the ideas of yeah. the fields we're in. I think we are working hard to structure that in. I think if you're in professional degrees, you get that experience. Mm -hmm. And to be blunt, an economics degree was a professional degree in that sense anyway. But as a lot of degrees have got bigger, building that cohort experience that I had is, um, is harder to do and we, we work hard at it. But the, that standard of teaching and all the other opportunities, God, there. I mean, they are amazing compared to what we had available to us. Um, and I think in postgraduate terms, students are given a much more structured and supportive experience in the universities I've been in as they go through a PhD. We sort of a bit, you were very dependent on your supervisor. Mm -hmm. Um, you were lucky if you had a cohort as I had that we came through at the same time. You might not. Um, I, there was much more chance of you falling off the edge of the cliff and falling into the pond and not getting your head up again. Um, so I loved it. But I learned lots of things that could be better. <laughs> and, and have you tried then in, in your practice in? The various positions you've had in, in the universities you've worked to to sort of translate some of those uh, observations that you had where, where there were room for improvement in, yeah. into the programs. Yeah, I, I actually think, uh, and we've put a lot of time into this at different times and come to, I think, hopefully better and different understandings over time about how, I think the nature of the cohort experience is real, and I've reflected on that, is really, really important. Mm -hmm. and, it, and trying to give people their tribe, and their tribe might be, as mine was, in their field, or it might be out of another set of experiences. I think you've got to work not to force people <laughs> into tribes, mm -hmm. but to give people those opportunities and try and draw them into that situation. Because when I went to university, there was almost no one from my high school there. I didn't know anybody. And so I met somebody else, two other people in my first year who I didn't know from a bar of soap and they looked very sophisticated to me compared to me. And, and, and I knew them when I finished my undergraduate degree, we ended up all of us doing slightly different honours degrees, but that was chance. I knew, therefore, that kids get to university and it's there and they've got no other experience of it. And, and so getting those sorts of experiences right is important. I'm conscious that trying to get um, variety of experience in to give people the, sh the shock of the new. Mm -hmm is really important, I think, even if it's a bit uncomfortable, um, just dragging people slightly. So there are things I think I got, some of them by chance, that I think are, are good to try and provide opportunities for people to do. And I observed some pretty 
pretty poor quality teaching in my time and what I'd call not good processes in various ways. Um, I didn't experience any, you know, uh, dreadful things, but you could see in that environment that dreadful things might have happened to people and you might have been lucky. And so I'm quite conscious of the support that has to be around people um, so that so that you give them the best chance, that you give them the best chance you can. Hmm. So we, when we graduated, because you and I are both Capricorns and there's, yes. there's 10 days difference between our birthdays. <laughs> um, we, there were jobs available for us to get. And so it, it was actually much more relaxed. Students now, there's not that sense of doing a, a sort of a generalist degree um, and then deciding what you're going to do. There's a real, there's been over the last, you know, 15 years, the vocationalization of, of degrees. Do you think that that has been successful or do you think that there's a real place for generalist degrees and then special specialisations? A bit like the parallel degree from Melbourne. Um, look, uh, so I did not actually do a generalist degree. People might think an economics degree is generalist now. Mm -hmm. I went to university to be an economist. I intended to work for the Treasury or the Reserve Bank. I am very little different in that from very many hundreds and thousands of undergraduates who start now who have an idea that they want to do this and that they should want to do this because they're going to have to support themselves at the end of it. So I fully understand that impulse. I don't think people should be directed away from that impulse. I also think other people say, oh, I'm not sure and I, and I feel I'm good at this and that. And so I, I, I feel we do offer generalist degrees and they're great things and they give people that ability to explore. And I think that's a good thing. Um, there was no way I could ever have contemplated not being able to support myself. Mm -hmm. and, and so, and I had had scholarships at every turn from the end of primary school all the way through. So I am not someone who talks down vocational degrees mm. because the, a, the joys of all the ideas I encountered through an economics degree <laughs> in which I did everything from the political economy of women through to psychology one, that they were great things that you might, um, you know, explore many different ideas in an arts degree or a science degree, yes, good. That people have the opportunity to choose and that it's high quality and that it is not narrow and instrumentalist in its con curriculum conception, yeah. I think is the key. Yeah, 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 no, no, I agree. But sometimes accreditation. Yes. Um, and registration actually does provide some limitations, which... It does, and we have to be stronger sometimes, I feel, as educators in our discussion with professional bodies about what is appropriate. And my observation with often the big ones, like if you, engineering accreditation, accounting accreditation, they've off, always, in my observation, talking, for example, to those panels, have understood 
that people need a breadth of understanding that they're bringing, not just technically I can do this, this and this. So that's partly down to us, but I haven't found them unresponsive. Um, I also think this other set of things we offer in universities, like we've got kids currently at the moment designing Mars rovers and um, high powered rocketry and electric cars and different forms of IT systems and how they design new things. Working on all sorts of things in those ways or working in, um, uh, all our law students are guaranteed a, um, a clinical experience. They go in and work with solicitors and they're working on everything from elimination of the death penalty in Southeast Asia through to how do I give uh, advice to a tenant in a rental. So it's all the other things we offer that, that allow people to explore different parts of parts of their possible world because university and you can see this as you get older is one of the great experiences and the only um, regret I have is as someone who traveled a long distance backwards and forwards on the train mm -hmm. um, I I didn't have I didn't really hang around much in I didn't join student societies and things like that and really there's so much for university and yeah, yeah. you'll always have regrets about things you didn't do but you want to make sure that other people have those opportunities yeah so getting back to you as an educator what's what's driven you as an educator both as a, a practitioner as an as a lecturer but also as a, a vice chancellor um. Um, what has driven me? Your, your, you've you've got an idea of what you are hoping to achieve, whether it's through a strategy for a whole organisation or through a design in a you know in a class, and and you're trying to achieve that to the best of your ability with other people, and so like everybody else you're you're driven to do the best of what you can do and I'll, that doesn't make I don't think me any different from mm -hmm. anybody whether they're whatever they're doing um it's just the field you're playing on um I am however particularly driven to stay in universities because you could say well you know, I did an economics degree I taught management why didn't you you know here I am you know Vice Chancellor, but you know, Chief Executive Officer in that sense. Why didn't you just go into another field? And the truth is that the underpinning thing that drives me is I believe in the huge importance of education for people's lives and opportunities and I don't mean just their ability to get a job I mean the quality of their life the quality of our society the discourse the civic quality civic and cultural quality of our life I think universities are really important contributors and have to be developed and um, 
have to be preserved, but they all have to be developed and to, to do that as well as to provide the opportunities that make life so much better. I mean, I came from a family where my family said, you know, education will make the difference. And I certainly could see and observe what happened without it. Mm -hmm. um, but, and so that opportunity for people, but I've got to say, God, the joy of watching people um, discover. <laughs> um, so that combination of things in universities is a beautiful thing. And so, yes, I would like to achieve what I think are the objectives and I would like to achieve it well, but it's because those things matter. Mm -hmm. That's actually, because it's not just anywhere I want to do it. It's in universities. Mm. So when we talk to these about the student experience, the current student experience, where do you think some areas of improvement might be? Um, because mm. sadly for many students, they have to work. Mm. Uh, mature age students have family obligations. So to have that experience that you, you waxed so, so positively about, yeah. what... What, can, what needs to be changed so that there is that opportunity to actually grow up in university? Um, I, I do think we have to try and... Um, that's why I'm, I am heavily focused on the, on the cohorts and that, that education, the broader educational experience, not just the teaching in the class. So we... You have to give people the opportunity um, to, to really build capability. I really dislike the notion that um, you know, the, the lectures are really important. They're, they're important actually for the, the way you gain from a lecturer perspectives on things and passion and engagement but really driving people into class group activities that give them both that ability to try things themselves and to debate I, I, you need to give them active engagement it's a horrible um, cliche but it's actually true and that's what makes the experience great so how do you structure things in different ways? They're not get, may not get it in, they may not, you may not like every subject. You may not, if you know, you're enrolled in X and think partway through, oh, well, that was really not really a bright idea, I'm sure. Not everybody's interested in everything. And I have, I have to remember that all the time because I loved everything. I, you know, I was always, you know, it was interesting. But that is not the way the world is. And so people have opportunities to be engaged and to be actively engaged themselves. And so trying to work out how you do that in a situation so that they can get the best out of it. So I'm very focused on scholarships. Mm -hmm. Scholarships that are big enough to give people enough time to reflect and get the aha moment so that they don't feel that they're there for that moment. I don't care if you're tired from the night before and 
falling asleep at 2.30 as I used to do sometimes because you're tired from the night before. It's not great for taking in the what happened in that lecture. But I don't want them doing that and feeling that I, I just have to get through this and I can't engage with it. So scholarships are really important to me. Um, can we get more of them? Can they be of a sufficient level? Um, our, our best scholarships, we, we've also, we structured in things so that people could go overseas. Because if you don't have money, you're not going to have an overseas experience because basically you can't afford it. You can't afford to stop working. You can't afford to go overseas. So trying to give people the room um, and then structure it so there are opportunities for them to get that very best. Because even if, even if it is difficult because people have to work, even if it is difficult because of time, we have to structure ourselves so that they get the opportunity to do that. That means we have to look at our timetables. We have to look at how we structure activities. We have to look at how we support them. Um, and you just have to keep working away at those things because your objective is that they will get that feeling of active engagement. That at some point they will have an aha moment <laughs> that when they look back, they'll go, God, that was, that was the thing that really made a difference. That was uh, the, the idea I'm carrying with me. You yep. want them to have the joy of it. Our universities have continued to grow. And I, I still remember the CFO at Sydney University when I, when I was there saying, universities don't thrive by shrinking. <laughs> yes. Do you think our, our, our universities have grown too large and have become too complex to to be able to deliver that experience that you talked about before, um, particularly the cohort experience? I think it's challenging. Um, I think we have grown and we've had to grow to get, uh, bluntly, a lot of what's driving it is how you deliver quality um, education when, you know, there's a sort of constant efficiencies being driven through the funding that are, that's coming to you. Um, and and in fact, in a world, particularly at the research intensive end, where high quality research has become increasingly itself large and uh, expensive, mm -hmm. you, there's a certain scale to support certain levels of and types of research endeavor and certain levels and types of quality of education um, to get the balance right. And that means you are having to work out then how do you give people that cohort experience because it's not going to come because they just happen to be in a class with 10 students. But as I point out, the notion that there was some golden years, at least in Australia when that happened, I was in an elite, as, as they are called now, group of eight university, and my classes were large. They were large then. So there were ways that that happened then because of the way things were structured, but it may only have happened. I, it may have been that I was getting a particular experience because of what I was doing and the degree I was in with the particular outcomes. We have to intentionally design to make sure we give that. 
So for example, my own university, we focused on rich, rich educational experiences. We're sending people in cohorts to, in our case, to mostly the places where we've got campuses because we can support them. They're not out of the same degree. They're mm -hmm. out of different degrees. They are undergraduates. They have got things to do. It's not a whole semester. It's a shorter period of time. But that is driving them out into an experience where they confront a series of ideas, a series of experiences. They build, they build connections with one another. That's intentionally attempting to create for them an experience that they might get in the degree they're in, but they might not. Mm -hmm. And it because of the way the classes are structured or what subjects they've decided to do. So if we can structure it in, we can we can work towards giving them those opportunities. I think you've just got to work really hard at it. I don't think you can infinitely get larger and larger. I don't think that's the case either. But I think there's the not for all universities, but if you're attempting to do certain sorts of research in certain sorts of places, then I think the way funding flows at the moment, it drives you to a particular sort of size, which makes Australian universities in the main larger on average mm -hmm. and a lot around the world. And until those things change, yeah. We, so we might not grow a lot larger, but we will be large. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my final question, I started with you, so I'm going to end with you. Um, you have been a vice chancellor for, God, 15 years. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, a bit more probably, yeah. Okay, so how has the role in that, in that 15 plus years, how has the role of vice chancellor changed and what's your greatest learning from being a vice chancellor? Oh, um, I thought I'd finish on an easy one. Yes, I was going to say. Well, um, well, of course, the, the, the thing about any leadership role is it's very heavily affected by context. So I'm, I, I'm not talking, I wouldn't talk in the abstract about how the role of Vice-Chancellor has changed, though I will say this. As universities become on average larger and more complex, and as they are more, uh, so the, uh, I can talk here from the ones I've been in, as they are more engaged, not in more structured ways, in relationships with philanthropic organisations, which they are now than they were when I started, more engaged, more engaged with big industry partners, I think, on a broader range of fronts than they were, more commercialization if, or translation, if you like, of research than there was. So, so the complexity and the range of what is being done, along with the on average increasing scale, makes the jobs considerably more complex. It's like any leadership role. If it's small enough that you can do it face to face, then what 
you need to understand how you need to do it, how you need to get things done is completely different to operating. So in my case, we've got multiple wholly controlled entities, multiple offshore campuses, um, multiple uh, spin-outs in which we hold equity, uh, engagement with philanthropy. And what I'm describing for me, probably offshore campuses more unusual, um, but a lot of those things are true, have, have expanded for universities. That makes the job more complex, more, more multi-layered and puts um, a huge premium on the way you build a leadership team and engage with them. These are not, <laughs> these are not lone ranger type of jobs. <laughs> um, so, so that's changed and the complexity therefore of the leadership structures underneath you have grown. So the whole leadership task in universities has increased in scale and complexity. Um, but it is also true that circumstance changes. The difference between, now when I started at RMIT, they had a big budget deficit. So the first thing you have to worry about is the budget deficit. Um, because it, it was actually a cash deficit. <laughs> and that's, that's about paying people. It's lucky you're an economist. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it'll, in doing that, I also at the same time worked on what, what the strategy should be for the next five years. And so you're having, a, you're having to remedy one thing and, and discuss the future in another. It's a sort of interesting tension going through COVID when, when you can't predict what's happening like day to day, you can't see you. We're used to long run, relatively long run planning and understanding and largely incremental movements. This was highly disruptive. So that places a different stress on leadership. So the truth is there's that arc in what a vice chancellor does but the, um, but the things that happen over time in a particular organisation or in the context around you will demand different things of people and that will test, test very, and might be entirely different aspects of what you've, um, how you've learnt to do what you do. Um, and so, you have to be constantly learning and watching. And it's probably true, though not, I suspect, largely confined to the, to the higher ed sector. There's probably a bit more public scrutiny mm -hmm. of vice-chancellors than there once was. Mm -hmm. and, and so you know, more likely to be called into those conflictual, because public scrutiny usually attaches to some conflict. So there's probably a little bit more of that um, now than there once was, but I'm not going to over, I'm not going to overstate it. I think that's just the impact of social media on all mm -hmm. sorts of leadership. Um, I'm not going to overstate it for universities. So those things are probably changed and 
the notion for all leaders in universities that you can just roll up to it, roll up your sleeves and sort of apply a bit of native intelligence, um, which was probably never the case. You know, people are always trying to seek people who seem to have demonstrated that they can do this and that. But, you know, the notion that somehow you could roll in and roll out, you know, and I've been elected for this many years and I'll do this for a bit and then I'll... No, they're, they're actually not amenable to that because it is too complex a job and the ability to implement strategy uh, requires an ability to work with numbers of people, um, both your community, staff and students, but a leadership group are also communicating with that community because you're not going to talk to them one-on-one -on -one <laughs> everywhere because it's not possible. So you, you are... Um, you have to understand the, the nature of the task. I would hope the thing that hasn't changed is what you're there for. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the thing that the university matters, that it's there, like institutions, they're there for a long period of time, circumstances change, you're there to help advance it and that, and that you're a steward for a time. That's, you know, you can't decide, oh, um, you're not there like saying, I think we've decided to move out of cereal and into, um, into fruit juice. Um, you are actually, you have to be um, committed mm -hmm. to the mission. There might be particular mission for your university, that's what you're trying to give expression to strategically. The overarching mission of the university, you better be there for that, I think. I think it matters. Mm -hmm. I think it's not that sometimes I care about this sort of organisation and another point I care about that organisation. No. The fundamentals of how we build knowledge, why we build knowledge, how we communicate knowledge, how we, you know, how we work with students... They're really fundamental things, and you have to be committed to those values. You, know, you sit on the academic board as one person, one voice, one vote. Not so. I, I firmly believe there are things about the collegium that is the university that you have to, you're there for long term for, and that's that's not going to change. And on that note, thank you. Thank you for spending nearly an hour on a Friday afternoon talking to me. I've had a great time. I've hoped that you've also enjoyed it. And um, Margaret, I wish you all the best for 2023. And I hope that there aren't challenges that you can't, uh, you can't manage. So thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Judith. You have been a great colleague, a great educator, and it's always a joy to talk with you. Thank you. And I'll see you in Canberra. Yes. <laughs> All right. Bye. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.